Good morning. If you have your Bibles, take them and turn them to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is where we find ourselves. So I want you to stand in honor of God's word and draw your attention to verse 19, uh, if you would, this morning. So the two of them went on their way until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, is, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. You can be seated. And so if you were with us last week, and if not to catch you up, we've journeyed off into the story of Ruth. And the story of Ruth really begins out with the story of her mother-in-law, Naomi. And it's been a really rough journey and rough road. The setting of this story finds us in a very chaotic time within the nation of Israel. The end of Judges, which is when this time is, this is during the period of Judges, is described in Judges chapter 21 by this, in those days Israel had no king and everyone did as he saw fit. It was a time of chaos for people. Political and social, economic, spiritual chaos, national chaos. The country was undergoing a famine and so everyone was starving. It was a very difficult time for that. And clearly in the midst of that chaos, the nation is under the judgment of God. The famine that they're experiencing was something that God had judged them with to bring them back, to bring them to the midst of that. And so everyone is affected by that. Dark time, chaotic time, mess time, lot happening as far as the big scope picture between God and his people and God's plan for his people. The story of Ruth, this book, gives us an author-narrator view zooming in on how the providence of God in the midst of all of that chaos, national upheaval, a mess of a time, worked through the likes of one individual family. It gives us a picture of particularly how this family dealt with all of that and what that looked like in their life. The story of Ruth is a story of purity and faithfulness and innocence, loyalty, love, devotion, and trust, all told through the events that are rather ordinary. A plain family struggling through, like everyone else, this season. An ordinary ho-hum family, yet God is working mightily behind the scenes, threading his story through some really plain and ordinary people. Which this should really give us some hope. That should really resonate and sit with us. Because you and I are pretty plain 
ordinary people. Most of us have not been on the front page of a newspaper. Most of us are not regulars on TV. Most of us are not some big national recognized hero. We're pretty plain and pretty ordinary. The wonderful hope found in the story of Ruth is that God was attentive and involved and oversaw the circumstances and lives of women like Naomi and Ruth just like he does with us. Our God is a very personal and very specific God. He knows your name. He knows every hair that you have. For some of you, that's really easy. He knows every nerve, every, he knit your DNA together. While you are plain and while you are ordinary, while there are seven billion of us in this world, you are also really unique. And from God's perspective, he personally and specifically works in the ordinary, ho-hum, plain things of your life. This lofty and almighty, incredible, sovereign, powerful God is involved in the personal day-to-day events of the likes of people like you and me. Now, the Bible is very clear that God, there's none like God. There is no one higher. There is no one stronger. There is no one more lofty than God. There is no one that de- like God that demands reverence and respect, honor, our worship. There's no one bigger than him to create everything that there is, to oversee everything there is, and to have a plan for everything that there is. He he is big and he is huge, he is mighty. But if that's the only thing you know about God, then you don't know God at all. Yes, he is those things. Yes, he is the great and awesome, holy, holy, holy God, but he is also personal and specific and intricately involved in me and you. This great mighty hand that has created the heavens and the earth is also knitting, weaving together the simple things of your life. You see, it's all part of his massive mosaic. And you and I are pieces and the things of our lives and the things of our days, the, the problems that we have, the things that come up, the small things that, 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 that take place are all part of this masterpiece, all pieces of his mosaic for his plan. That's the beauty of the book of Ruth. We see ordinary events taking place and we see God's hand involved in every step. Ordinary events such as moving, of leaving home and coming back home. Ordinary events such as death and grief and hunger, loneliness, generosity. This story tells us the story of marriage and childbirth, legal matters, day-to-day work. I mean, ordinary events such as how to deal with your mother-in-law. 
and yet God working in it. And God working in even the foolishness and the mistakes of people. Because let's just be honest, if, just to catch you up. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, made a foolish choice in chapter 1. Everyone was suffering and starving, and so was his family. But the truth of the matter is, he left the providence of God. He left the protection of the land. He left the trust of God. And he moved to a wicked place with foreign gods, far away from home, far away from the provision and protection of God. Elimelech made a foolish choice for the sake of trying to rescue and save his family. And it didn't work out really well. He died. And what made matters worse is that his sons died after they were married. And so now not only do you have one widow, you have three widows. But yet in the midst of that, God's provision and God's care was never thwarted. The providence of God stood strong. The plan of God stood strong and steady through that. It was still involved. He was still attentive. And he still provided for Naomi and Ruth. And that's something I want you to see this morning. Is that God's providence, God's care for you and for me. God's involvement and activity and love and compassion and consistency for us. Is not thwarted by your mistakes and by my foolishness. It overrides, it shines through even those things. And so here Naomi is returning, broken and grieved, with a daughter-in-law connected to her hip, who is also broken and grieved, coming back home to this little town, this little village called Bethlehem. It tells us here in verse 19 that when they arrived, the town was stirred because of them. Any hope that Naomi had of slipping back into the town and getting home unnoticed and without big fanfare, just kind of getting back to life and, and coming back quietly was, was shot before she ever got to the town. It was noticed who she was and recognized who she was. And it says the town was stirred. The town was buzzed by this whole thing. She'd been gone for 10 years. These people hadn't talked to her, spoken to her, seen her in 10 years. And she shows up maybe hoping that she could just kind of slip in and work behind the scenes and then begin to tell her story little by little by little, kind of keeping whatever she wanted to within. Not the case. Before she ever gets to town, it's known she's back. And it's not just that she's known. No, it's like the news of the day. Like on the five o'clock, seven o'clock, 10 o'clock news, whatever, it's all over. Naomi, Naomi's back. Could this be Naomi? It's, it's buzzing. People are buzzing. And, you know, maybe for us being big city people, it's kind of hard, hard to really understand this. I mean, people move here every day and we don't notice. Like we notice like someone moves into our neighborhood like next door, but, but we don't take much attention. It doesn't disrupt our life. We don't stop, watch, think, who are these people? What are they doing? And so forth. But you got to understand, though, and some of you may understand if you grew up in a really small setting, a small town, the village life. It's a small village. And in small villages like this, there's not a lot happening. And it's one of those places where 
Everybody knows your business. Everybody knows everything about you. And they think a whole lot more about you and talk a whole lot more about you. This is a town that just doesn't have a lot going on necessarily. And so when a visitor arrives, it was well known. I mean, they would find out about it before and it probably children playing out in the pasture somewhere would see people coming in. They'd run back in and said, Mom, Dad, somebody's coming, somebody's coming, somebody's coming. That may have been the case. You know, we've experienced this in, in little villages and in places in Africa. We get off the bus. We travel several miles that day, get to a village. We don't have a clue where we are. All we did was follow a dirt road. And in the afternoon, we arrive. They have everything put together planning for our visit. They know we're there. They're aware of it. They've made arrangements to have a meeting with the chief. They've rolled out the red carpet. They've got mats and chairs, and they're just waiting for these visitors who were five miles away or three miles away that morning in a bus who might make their way to this village. And so the village is like that in Naomi's case. I mean, she was hoping to slip under the scenes maybe, but that's not the case. It was buzzed for who she was. And the question was, can this be Naomi? Is that? Is that Naomi? She's not even got to town and people are beginning to ask these questions. And it says the women in particular are asking these questions. Is this Naomi? I don't know. Why do you say that? Well, I mean, it, it kind of looks like Naomi. How long has it been? I mean, like 10 years or so. It was back when so-and-so was born or when we were in that really bad famine. Remember they got up and left, her husband, well, where's her husband? She left with a husband and two boys. Why? She's just her. I don't know if that's Naomi. She looks a little thin to be Naomi. No. I think she's put on some weight. What do you know, the people in the Bible talk like that? I mean, seriously, they're, they're talking about trying to figure this out. No, she, she, her hair wasn't that gray when she left. She's got more wrinkles. Man, time has been good to her. Mm, time hasn't been so good to her. Where are the boys? Where's Elimelech? And who is who's that woman with her? Are you sure this is Naomi? I think it is. Naomi, as she approaches the town, becomes aware that she's the topic. She's the gossip topic. She's what everybody is whispering about and talking about. Everyone's looking at her as she comes in and she hears someone say, can this be Naomi? And she interrupts and she says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Someone says, she comes in, she says, I know you're talking about me. I know everybody's watching. I know everybody's wondering. Let me just say this. Let me just clear this up. I am not the same. 10 years, I left. 10 years, I'm back. And I'm not the same person. The name Naomi means pleasant and Likely she was a person that had a sweet spirit, a sweet disposition, a positive person, a pleasant person to be around, someone that she would want to be around. But Naomi says and thinks to this point, that name, pleasant, doesn't describe me at all. Call me Mara. I'm bitter. If someone were to call out the name and say, pleasant, I wouldn't respond. I wouldn't think they were talking to me. But if someone were to say, is anybody here bitter? I would raise my hand. That would be me. 
Because these past 10 years, something's happened. What a greeting, by the way. Naomi, is that you? Don't call me Naomi. Sorry. Call me Mara. Think about it. A long journey home. Every step of the way, retracing the steps from 10 years ago. Thinking about that early journey and who and what she had. The last time she traveled this road, she had two boys and a husband who loved her. The hope that they had for a future. And now she's coming back without any of that. And then to come home and to see not only has she changed, but there's probably been a lot of things changed. A lot of familiar things, and that was probably really painful, but probably also a lot of things that are there that weren't there before. She sees her friends. These other women who are now holding grandbabies. The friends of her boys who are now married with their own children. Everyone seems to be happy and everyone seems to be full. They survived. They, they still have their husbands. They still have their children. And now there's grandchildren in this village that weren't here before. There's stories to tell and memories and, and so-and-so got married. Probably on the way out, she passed some of the fields or maybe some sort of park type setting, whatever they had where the boys used to play. All the memories that would come back then. Maybe she passed the area where Elimelech courted her at one time. Ten years had been hard. And Naomi likely has the wrinkles that are formed because of the grief and the pain in her heart. That's what she says. Verse 21, I went away full. I went away with a husband and with boys, with hope for a future. I went away full. I had everything that you had. I was in the same situation you were in. But the Lord has brought me back empty. It's all gone. My husband, my children, my future. Look at me now. Don't call me pleasant. I am bitter. I am angry, I am ticked, I am frustrated. I have wasted 10 years of my life. And in that 10 years of my life, I have lost everything that I ever loved and I ever cared about. Don't call me happy. Don't call me pleasant. Call me what I really am. I am bitter, I am angry, I am hurt. Before you start going in to tick, 
pointing the finger at Naomi. I don't know what the response of some of the village people would have been. Before you start, well, Naomi, this is kind of your fault. I understand that, but y'all were the ones that left. You know God's plan. You know God's promise. You know God's people. You know what he, and y'all left it. What did you expect? I told you you shouldn't go. I told you something would happen. I told you not to leave the care of the place and the people of God. You're the one that wandered in to the land of the Moabites, the unclean, wicked Moabites. You're the one that let your sons marry Moabite women. You should have expected this, Naomi. Now, there may be some truth to that. But before we start ripping into Naomi and her bitter heart, at least she was honest. She was ticked. She was angry. She was hurt. And she wasn't hiding it. Like we do so well. I'm fine. It's good to be home. You look great. It's been a good 10 years. Super excited to be back. Missed you. Just couldn't stay away. Glad to be back. How you doing? Best day ever. Let me just tell you something, friends. The truth of the matter in life is that the glass sometimes is half full or worse. And at least she didn't pretend as if everything was wonderful. Nor did she chalk it up as well, you know, as things would turn out, as luck would have it. Yeah, I just lost everything. We didn't believe it. It just things happened. She was honest, and in her honesty, in her bitter, painful, tearful honesty, there does lie a faith. Because listen, life sometimes is not fair, and life sometimes is not peaceful. And if anyone would ever stand up behind God's word and tell you otherwise, they are lying to you. We live in a broken, sinful world. And the truth of the matter is, you may be faithful, you may be good, you may make some great decisions, you may use common sense, you may pray, and you may seek to do something, but it doesn't always mean that if you're faithful and good and right and true, that everything is going to work out. That's not God's promise. It's not. That is a false prosperity gospel that is from the pits of hell. And to act as if those who have it all are in the right is wrong and is not in this book. You see, the faith not lies, doesn't lie in what she claims and what she believes and what she pro. It lies in the fact that she understands That in all the bad, in all the difficult, in all the hard, God is 
still in control. He was in control. He is in control. And he will be in control. And she communicates that faith in some declarations she makes, in some accusations she says. In verse 20 she says, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Now what she doesn't say is the Almighty did this. The Almighty is the, is the beautiful name, the, the name that's so often used in the Old Testament for God, Shaddai. And the word, the name Shaddai, gives a picture and is painted for us that God at his best when we're at our worst. That the hand that I've been dealt, what happened to me was very bitter. What God has put before me, the almighty God, the high and lifted God, what he's done for me is not pleasant and is not what I wanted and not what I asked. I went away full, but Yahweh, verse 21, but Yahweh emptied me, but the Lord has emptied me. He brought me back this way. Verse 21, the end of that. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? A hint of admission that she was wrong. And verse 21, the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Though her complaint is bitter, her complaint is honest. And in that bitter but honest complaint, we see faith. She has lost everything. And in losing everything, she has relinquished and lost all control. She couldn't stop anything of what it was happening to her. She couldn't slow it down. She couldn't back it up. She couldn't reverse it. No matter what she tried, no matter how closely she hung on to, she lost it is. And here she is back in Bethlehem, the house of bread with the people of God in the nation of God, in the city that she was grown up in, that she left. She's back having given up, come back. And she realizes and she understands that in all that has happened, God is in control. Admitting none of these things would have happened were he not in control. We see this time and time again in the story of people dealing with God throughout the Old Testament, being brought to a place of relinquishing control to understand he is in control. We see it in the story of Abraham, a man who is elderly in his life, given a promise and that promise wasn't fulfilled. And until he gave up control and stopped trying to do things on his own, did he realize what God's plan and provision really was. And then when he had a son, God says, kill him, sacrifice him. And until he was willing to surrender that control, did he not see the provision of God? We see it in the story of, of his descendants, the, the Israelites who were thrown into Egypt and God rescued them out of Egypt. And, and it's great, it's awesome. They're, they're on this trek out of Egypt. God set them free, but then they come up to the Red Sea and they don't have control anymore. 
They can't cross this Red Sea. The, the Egyptian army's breathing down their necks. And it's until they get to that place where they realize we are not in control, but he is that they see hope. You see the story of the disciples who were in a boat and storms came and they were out of control. It's in those moments that they realize he is in control. You and I need to understand this. Is that with God, there is always hope. Hope is not a feeling. Hope is a reality when you trust in the Lord. But until you confess and admit that God is in control in, in all things and that you are in his hands and that all things are in his hands, and until you get to the place and point where you realize and understand that where you are and what you're facing and what you're dealing with is because he has allowed it to be that he has put this before you. He has allowed these circumstances to swell up around you, and yet he is in control of those circumstances. Until you realize that he is in control, you cannot see hope. You cannot see hope until you first see his control. Because if you don't recognize his control, you're not being realistic. That it's just chance, or it's just happenstance, or it's just simply a result of my mistakes. If you can't see his control, then your theology is weak, and you're in danger of continuing to ignore the one you ignored in the first place. He is in control, and that's where our hope begins. The hope for your marriage begins in seeing he is in control and his way is better than your way. The hope for your freedom from addiction is understanding he is the higher power. Step one, and not just that there is a higher power, but the higher power that is almighty God, the one true God is in control. The step for you getting out of your financial crisis is understanding that it's all his money. He's in control of all of it. The hope for your health and the issues you're facing with that do not begin and end with a doctor's diagnosis, medicine and surgery. It begins and ends with you realizing he is in control. And though bitter, and though angry, and though hurt, honesty, we see that Naomi has held true to her faith that God is in control. And so as we close the curtain on act one, the narrator just before the curtains fall, gives us a hint, a taste of that hope. That there's something more. And he says this at the very, very end. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. 
When they left Bethlehem 10 years ago, there was no harvest. And now they're back at the beginning of harvest. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread. That's what the name means, house of bread. And finally, Bethlehem is living up to its name. You see, when God is at work, even hopelessness gives light to a new beginning, a new chapter for Naomi is about to start. Something's about to happen. Naomi can't see it and she doesn't realize it, but she's relinquished control. And what we get to see from our perspective is that there is a God above all of this that has a plan for Naomi because it's the beginning of harvest. There is a new chapter and a continued story. Naomi doesn't see the things in her life that God's put there that should bring her immense hope. She doesn't see the opportunity that's in front of her. She's home. She hadn't been in this place for 10 years around people that loved her, people that cared for her, people that could walk with her, people that would show compassion for her, people that would be her friend, people that would remind her of the truths of who God was and, and listen to her pain and listen to her grief and offer balm and healing for it. She doesn't recognize the fact that she has a daughter-in-law with her. She's, she said she's empty, but she's got a daughter-in-law beside her who's been through the same thing she has, who's lost a husband, who's, who's left home. And she's attached herself with loyalty and commitment and love to care for Naomi, but also not just to care for, to walk spiritually with Naomi and towards her God. And you know, it's interesting of this character, Ruth, that we haven't even talked about. It's kind of, if you only read chapter one, you say, why is this book called Ruth? It should be called Naomi and the Bitter Woman. In all we've seen of Ruth so far, she's faced the same things. She's left home. She's lost a husband. And, and yet there's not even a hint of negative or bitter attitude mentioned with her. What we see is a meek and faithful woman who is now a follower of God. And she has Jehovah Shaddai, the provider, she's returned to his land, to his people, to his promise. This land was known as the land of milk and honey. And here she is in the midst of all of that where God promises to provide for his people. And the harvest is ready. He is about to do it. It's time for a new beginning and a fresh crop. It reminds me, this is an illustration of something that was said thousands of years later by a follower of Christ in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And it's the same for you. If you have allowed God to be in control of your life, and if you have surrendered control of your life to him, then trust him that he's in control. And that he has a purpose and he has a plan for you.
God's control, God's providence will always outshine our pain, our foolishness, our mistakes, our circumstances. God is watching over every detail of our lives. And when we are at our worst, God is at his best. And sometimes his best work is done in the shadows of our ordinary lives as he carefully, quietly takes care of us. Reminds me of that song. Why should I feel discouraged? Why should the shadows come? Why should my heart feel lonely and long for heaven and home? When Jesus is my portion, a constant friend is he. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches over me. He's the God who's in control of even the ordinary.